Hello and welcome to a new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dalibor Plavzic, an analyst for the Canadian men's national team. Dalibor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Dalibor, we'll begin by, by asking, what does the game of football mean to you? Ah, what does the game of football mean to me? Well, uh, it means everything, really. Like it's, uh, you know, it's a hobby, it's a passion, it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's, it's a, it's a mix of everything. So, you know, it's hard to explain it to to someone who doesn't play it or doesn't involve themselves in it. But, you know, when I think about football, I think of what I did yesterday, and I watched about four games on TV yesterday, and I thought, like, you know, this isn't boring for me. (laughs) Like I could, I could do this all day. Um, so it's, it's everything. It really is. And I'm sure you're like the rest of us absolutely glued to the European Championships and Copa America at the moment. I mean, yeah. what are your impressions thus far? Um, you know, I've been, I've been tuning into the Euros a bit more than the Copa America, but I did get a chance to watch the Argentina-Ecuador game. And, you know, I'm still amazed at what Messi's able to do for the international team and, and just the statistics and everything that he's pulling through for his team. Um, the Euros have been a delight. You know, I think Italy for me really has has changed kind of what the what the norm used to be about a strong collective defensive team. Now they're a mix of both. Uh, and it's been really, really great to watch. And, you know, when I'm watching England now, I, I, I see Southgate was always getting the criticism of his lineups and, and his squad rotation. And even seeing Sancho getting the chance to play yes, or the other day, it's it's been a real delight to see teams like Italy and England succeeding. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of pressure from their countries as well um, in, in succeeding. And I think their domestic leagues really have a high pressure of developing top talent for their nations. And I think with Inter's success this year, uh, it's really brought in a lot of good Italian players to swallow as well. And um, Atalanta, like you've got a lot of good teams uh, and then just seeing the young, uh, young English players, you know, you're seeing the likes of Grealish, you're seeing Foden's, you're seeing Mounts, you're seeing the quality that they have and the depth that they have. You know, you look at England's B team and you think, wow, like that's a strong starting 11, let alone a, a subs bench. So, yeah, it's been great to watch. I've been really enjoying it. I think it's quite ironic when you when we muse about international football in this life and we say it's nearly been a breath, uh, you know, a bit of, um, Jesus, what's the word? A breath of fresh air compared yeah. to the club season. Um, but you know, like growing up in Canada, not exactly a soccer hotbed when you were growing up, Dalibor. I mean, where did it did, did it all begin? I mean, where did this love for football stem? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, for me, like growing up in Canada, like I moved, I moved to Canada when I was six. I was actually a refugee to Canada. Uh, my family escaped the Yugoslav War and. Uh, you know, it was a big thing back in Yugoslavia to play football. And, you know, you, you kind of carried that culture with you when you came here. And, you know, it really just started like the first day I got to school here. It was just like it was the thing that I did on my time off because I didn't need to speak to anyone because I didn't know the language. And it became this way of just developing friendships and this way of just being able to identify with who I was and, and what I was about. Uh, you know, you, you come in the first day, you don't really know how to associate with people, you know, people kind of ask you questions, you don't know how to respond. But th- that time off, you know, when kids before school, during school at lunch or after school, it was it was only soccer. Uh, and it still is to the day, but that was my way of connecting. And, 
growing up in Canada, I've seen the game really take off, but yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's meant a lot for me. It really got my foot in the door here, making friends, continued uh, relationships to friends. And, and it's been a real, real um, great thing for me. So yeah, it's really helped. And then fast forward nowadays and you see the likes of Alfonso Davis, Jonathan David. I mean, how imperative is it to, for Canadian kids to have these guys as reference points be upheld to? Yeah, it's, you know, having, having worked with both of them, it, you know, you, you, just, you just see how much passion and, and love and, and care they have for the country. And I think that, you know, the men's national program has really excelled in, in bringing that awareness to the rest of the country. Uh, particularly from the likes of those two, but even before then, like Atiba Hutchinson, who's playing, I think is what, sixth or seventh year at, uh, at Besiktas now. But yeah, it's, it's meant a lot. And especially the young kids, you know, just dreaming and, and, and thinking of who they could be one day as footballers. And now you see these two guys, one winning, winning the French title and, and another one um, recently winning a Champions League about a year ago. And you know, you think from the from the places that they're from, where the where the winters are are, are freezing, <laughs> you can't imagine them. It's it's quite something special that they've built for Canadian players. And I think Jonathan took took the risk of going to Europe, and, and you know, and he's landed himself in Belgium and had a good stint there, and then landed himself in France. And you know, he had his critics at to start, but wow. What a what a what a difference he's made for himself there in, in his first season. So it's been really cool to see it because it's Canadian. You you feel really drawn to that. And you know, I've been watching a lot more of the French league just because he's there. And it's been really enjoyable for me. And that's social element. That's why we're all involved in football, Dalibor. I mean, you know, coming as a young refugee from Yugoslavia to Canada, getting to meet friends, going up through the ranks during the game. I mean, you look at other refugees such as Alfonso Davis who've gone on to make their name in the Canadian men's national team. I mean, we don't discuss politics on the show, but, you know, having experienced it firsthand, how unifying a force really is football in drawing all these demographics, all these people from different religions, creeds, etc., under the one national umbrella must be an outer body experience at times. It, yeah, it, it is. And I think what, uh, what I've really started to see in the last couple of years is how much we're embracing like multiculturalism, but more importantly, like interculturalism, which means like how much different cultural groups are able to associate themselves for, for, for football, right? Like multiculturalized, we have events here in Vancouver where, you know, people, people represent their country and it's like, it's like an adult tournament for the summer. But, you know, when you start to see during the seasons, like how many different cultures are all coming together for just a social element of football. And it's been really inspiring to see just how much the game's grown and, it, and it's continuing to grow with, you know, just the amount of kids who just aspire to, to become the next Alphonse or Jonathan David and just how much more involved they are to these, to these types of players and how much more exposure they're getting now to seeing like the top level football in the world. Uh, it's not something that we're used to. Um, so it's been a real highlight for us here. Yeah, and I mean, you have even managers at the elite level of the game, such as your Julian Nagelsmanns, once remarked that social competence is up to 70% of the footballing game. I suppose that's a caveat with what we're about to discuss, to discuss with coaching. Um, I'll take you back to an old tweet um, on your profile, Dalbor. It was from Peter Kravitz, Jurgen Klopp's assistant. 
And he said, the system itself is not important in football. The point of coaching is to try make, to make football a game based on many random events less random. Where do you begin with this? What is the foundation behind it all? Yeah, I, it's, uh, you know, I, I was reading that quote actually came from uh, Jürgen, from Ralph Hogenstein's book, uh, Bring the Noise, the Jurgen Klopp story. And, you know, it's a great book. I'd highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, what he, what he spoke about a bit earlier in the book was about how he was quoting a, a quote for, actually from Lucas Podolsky. And the quote was that um, football is like a game of chess. And then Peter Kravitz says, well, you know what? Actually, football is like a game of chess, but you're rolling dice. And so, you know, you're really playing with randomness here. And you're and the game is, and is, in its essence, is chaotic. But when we talk about things like motor scale acquisition, affordances, and all these elements that come back to what football is, really, it's really quite, uh, it's really quite unique. Um, and, and you kind of... You, you kind of have to take football as it, its principal element. And, and I know Brendan Rogers has also talked about this, that the fo- football is not a game of systems. It's about principles. You know, how do we, how do we manipulate the opponent or how do we impose ourselves on an opponent to create, to create obviously space and goal scoring opportunities. And what I've really, what I've really learned in the last, I would say two years where I've really started to hone in on the craft of what some of the best are doing and really trying to learn from them as well is just seeing how, how they're able to just tactically just involve every player and principally every player knows their responsibility and the collective objective. And I think what I've, I've just really started to, to really pinpoint now is like, you know, there's, there's always, there's no guarantees in football. Like you might say that you need to get in a certain space to get this pass but what if the pass doesn't get to you in the way that you wanted it the intention like what's our recycling moment like what are we now doing differently to impose ourselves the same way we might have intended originally so i think what what Krajewicz is on is that you know the game's about principles and the game is really about seeing the game and its principles and really honing into that piece rather than systems because the game is always going to be 11 v 11 right it's 11 v 10 when you have the ball because the goalkeeper is not really a defender in the moment but you think about principally how can we do this over 90 minutes consistently to to impose ourselves and i think the the chaoticness of football is really just it's really taking it, it taking its sort of um identity on that now you see teams pressing differently attacking differently there's structural elements that change and, and principally they're trying to do things a bit differently than they're used to. And, you know, you think of like Man City being one of them, you know, they don't look the same way from start to finish. There's tactically so many elements that they're doing, but it's based on principles of how they manipulate their opponent. Uh, and it's been really interesting to study that now um, for me. And, you know, it very much is an, an infinite game, Delabor. And inherently within that, there's going to always be a lot of complexity. I mean, finding creative solutions to these complex problems, I presume that's something which you very much enjoy in the coaching process. Yes, yes, yes I do. And, you know, I've, I've been starting to read a lot more work in the motor, motor scale acquisition piece. And, you know, there's guys like Marco Sullivan, uh, James Vaughn, who work at AIK, um, Richard Shuttleworth, Keith Davids. 
you know, there's all these people like that just have really taken this sort of element to the next level. And, you know, it's, you know, you think about, you think about what you, what you learn in, in football and you think of the way you were sometimes coached and you, you sometimes feel that, you know, you were coached an if or what scenario. So if this happens, what do we do? Right. And it's like the one-stop answer. And it's like the one-stop shot, but the game is not that because we're, we're assuming this all on perfectness, this game that it's going to happen that way. But the reality is that it doesn't, um, you know, you, you can't say the same event's going to happen when you play on grass versus turf because the ball might move slower. So how do we react? Like how do we adapt ourselves on the environment, the constraints that are within, within that? Uh, and I think that's the important piece is you've got you've to embody that knowledge and you've got to really put that on the player uh, to, to, to discover that. And, and it's, I think coaching now has really moved towards guided learning and discovery learning. Um, rather than the, the the question and answer, right? It's the question with multiple answers. It's not the answer, um, which is which I think is actually brought out the art of coaching a bit more. And I suppose, I mean, you can be creative and reacting to a problem, or you can be creative by being proactive and taking and yes. seizing the initiative. I mean, yeah. how can coaches future proof their players and their teams? For the future, I know, for example, one of your big tools is differential learning, something which Thomas Tuchel uses a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's different ways that you can that you can mold. Um, it's even training design. You know, how are how are you how are you using the constraints of a pitch to maybe hone in on certain behaviors that you want your players to have? You know, it's not just you set up a square and you say this is how I want you to interact well, why don't we actually set it up in a different way so it actually gives us more problems to solve, more spaces to occupy, more spaces to discover. Because what I've, what I've just become to notice and just learn, and, and you learn that from some of the best, is that the game, the game has so many different structural pieces that you have to almost bring in the, the chaoticness into the training. And you learn to teach within that chaoticness and you really get to simplify some of that piece um and you know it's you know it's it's really just about learning and feeling out the game and that's what i think coaching's really started to become is really feeling out the game and you know you can you can see that tactically now even when you watch teams uh, now even at the euros like just how much the managers are involved because they want to tweak something to the micro detail because that's actually very important for them that one yard or two yards might actually make or break a pass for them uh, in possession. But you think principally about and method and your methodology, like what what training looks like. And for me, it looks like chaoticness, and it, and it doesn't look so structured because the more structure you you put in, the more you realize that actually it isn't in the game. It's not football. You you have to almost bring in you have to bring in like all four elements of football. That's the organization, the transition phases, and the organization in, de in defensive moments so you have to bring in all four because the game is interacting and in synchronous with all four at the same time uh, and it's really about discovering that as a player and as a coach how do you embody that on the player and I spoke with Reese Kerr recently on this podcast Delabar, and he spoke about guided discovery and one of his big quotes was why give a player you know why don't we give these players at 15 what they can experience when they're seniors and pros at 25. Why do they have to wait those 10 years? 
I mean, yeah. embracing that complexity, finding innovative, creative solutions, to such common problems. Which coaches impress you most in this regard? Um, innovative, innovative. Um, I'm actually, I'm a big caveat of the, of the Bundesliga. So I'm very biased in, in, in my approach. So, I mean, Thomas Tuchel at his time at Mainz is definitely one. Uh, and if you're looking for a differential approach, um, there's actually, there's a playlist on YouTube that someone's put up and it's all, almost all of his training sessions from a season at Mainz. Uh, and if you actually follow the, the methodology behind it, you can actually pinpoint why certain things were done. Uh, so, for example, he had a game where it was 6v6 plus three, three neutrals, and he played it with a regular size ball. And then you see about four weeks later, it's the same thing, but with a ball about a, a fifth of the size. It's a mini ball. And you start to see, well, why is he maybe doing that? Well, it's because it's more reactionary. There's actually a bigger response that's needed from the brain in order to to enhance their level of understanding of why they need to be there in a certain space, um, the speed of passes, the speed of support. Um, and, and it's really, it's really unique to see. Uh, so Tuka would be one, uh, Julian Nagelsmann would be another. Um, for me, those, those stand out as the top two. And um, I would say Matarazzo and what he's been able to do this year as well. Uh, and here his story. Sure. Yeah, hearing his story from the from being a being a university student in the U.S. and then taking the risk to travel to Germany and you know falling in love with the with the coaching aspect there, it's it's really inspiring. Um, and then yeah, I would say those those three for sure. And then I think more from like a mental buy-in and, and the body language and just like a whole like a, I would say like a warrior's mentality sort of. I would say actually it's Jesse Marsh. I've really enjoyed seeing his Salzburg team play and just, you know, I remember watching him on I'm on MLS, like on a Saturday afternoon. And then now I'm seeing him like years later and he, and he's now going to be coaching at RB Leipzig. Like what a, what an incredible story, but those four for me would stand out. <laughs> one point about Jesse Marsh. And this is something I've discussed with um, some of my mates who they're asking questions about him at the moment. You know, what strikes me about Jesse compared to some of these other coaches, of course, he's American, but it's that ability to express vulnerability. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing, because even during lockdown last year, there was this podcast called uh, Flying Coach, where they had likes of Pete Carroll. They had Steve Kerr from the Warriors. This year, they have Sean McVeigh from the LA Rams. And for me, the, could you imagine, really, Dalibor, a top Premier League coach doing a podcast like that? You know, being that authentic and genuine and expressing that vulnerability, I don't think I can. I think it's a cultural thing. And for me, Jesse Marsh, wherever he's, wherever you go, wherever he goes, you know he's going to get that 100% buy-in because he is who he is. He's genuine. Yeah. He's authentic. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think I think that's inherently like, you know, I think what, what, I, what I love seeing about what he's been able to do is just how much he's willing to put himself out there for the greater good of his squad. Like, you know, if you, if you watch some of his uh, like talks at Red Bull Salzburg, like he's speaking in German for like half of the, half of the, half of the piece with the team. And, you know, there's moments he brings in his English element, but the guys just, I think are sitting there. And then if I was a player, I'd be like, wow, like, a guy who's really just taken in this whole new language, learning something new and, and really trying to just fit in with us and trying to understand us. Because 
as much as the game is uh, has an objective element, I think it's really empowering that you you're kind of bringing your your piece of human human onto the onto the team. Uh, you know, it's 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 just it's it's interesting to watch and and how how he's been able to change um, the culture of, of what the fans thought he was at Red Bull Salzburg. Like there was fans out there saying no for Marsh, like they didn't want him, and then now you know, they're singing his praises and, you know, he's gotten all this credit for the amazing work he's done. And, you know, I think back to the game against Liverpool in the champions league and I'm thinking like, you know, this is extremely impressive. And then you watch them against Bayern. And although the result wasn't probably what they wanted, you know, they didn't stop for 90 minutes, regardless of result. Like it was the same, same Salzburg team. Uh, And yeah, that's been an inspiring piece for sure. And then if we're going to hark back on to, the air for coaching, I suppose, Dalibor. I mean, yeah. I heard Thomas Tuchel before saying how his Chelsea squad and indeed how his Mike Stortman PSG squads, how they never once trained the game in isolation because football's a complex game. However, yeah. you know, on the other hand, we see a lot of traditional youth training such as 11v11, um, in and out of possession phases. They're seemingly at odds, specifically yeah. with the latest neuroscience research. Um, they prohibit pl- flow status. They don't teach that variety. I mean, within all of this, how can we get back to linking individual development plans to our sessions without compromising our game models? Because having spoken with a lot of coaches, I know they always seem to think there's a trade-off between the two. Yeah, it's and it's sometimes even, it's a good question you raise. And I sometimes even ask the question, like, what is the objective in your game model? Like, what is what is ultimately the objective? And Sometimes there's even been people saying like our game model is actually too constraining. Like, do they actually constrain the player within? Like, do, does that does it afford every player the ability to become the best their best self? Um, and you know, it's I think I think that's where the coaching education piece now is starting to slowly move into, just with all the research that's being done. Uh, it's I think individually you've got to give every player the chance to succeed and i think when you break the game down into phases well the game doesn't always look that way um and it's it's hard to it's hard to give that to the players because if you ask them like how much they enjoy that type of session you you don't really know what the feedback's going to be and one thing that i do with my team here i work in a high performance league here in vancouver canada but I, I simply asked the players at the end of the session, I was like, what was one thing you take away from today? Like take away is like, I wouldn't want to do that. Like I didn't enjoy it. And you actually start to listen to what they say and you start to actually make sense of what makes sense to them. Like what do they actually enjoy? And that's not just like three V three tournaments or, or just big, big, big 11 V 11 games. It's, it's sometimes actually just bringing the fun and the joy into the everyday for them. And getting them to, to, to feel a sense of belonging, chaoticness. Um, and within that is where we coach. And, and that's where I think the guided learning comes in. And that comes from the constraints, the dimensions, the, the, the shape of the field, and the overall objective of that game. Right? When you think of the objective of a game that you might organize for, it, for your team, you can start to ask those questions, which might actually narrow in on what you're actually wanting principally, right? Like you can design a game where, where you're wanting players to dribble and break lines. And then you can, you can start to ask questions about 
scenarios and, and what are ways that we can do to provide space for our players to dribble. Like those are, those are just really mi- minor ones, but it's really just about listening to the player. Like, and I think that's where sometimes I feel like the art of coaching might get lost is when we start to think about what we think is best, but we never actually ask the player what they think is best because every player is different. Like you can't go into the same say like a new club and bring the same way because it doesn't work. Like you can't just copy and paste it. And I know Mourinho talked about that a year, like years ago when he was at Chelsea and his second stint, and he said like, you know, become a good coach. You just have to, you have to create something that's your own. Like you have to create something that's your own. You can't just copy and paste and then say it's going to work here. That's not true. You have to modify that. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so that's something that I've definitely taken away um, is just session design, question design, um, and really just getting feedback. That's been the key. Well, if you were to break it down, really, the player is the protagonist. And the game, yeah. ultimately, nowadays, the speed of the game, the ability of the player, it's a series of 1v1 duels all over the pitch. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, at the youth phase, I think what gets lost, especially with coaches, is that, you know, teams don't get into professional teams. Players, individuals, get into professional teams. So there's yeah. a fine balance there. You want to make sure the team's adapting, adhering to your game model, and they're all developing, but as we know, development is non-linear, unfortunately. Yeah. That's just a fact of life. Yeah. Then, you know, once in every so often, once a decade, once in a lifetime, a maverick comes along, such as a Marcelo Bielsa, a Pep Guardiola. What do they do, Dalibor, that kind of distorts this perception, um, action, decision-making loop? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I know that there's, you know, when you read on Twitter, like there's people who are arguing against what maybe Bielsa would do versus someone maybe like Tuco, which is a bit of a different approach. People would say that, you know, Bielsa's got more of a, a mentality where, you know, it's it's almost like predictive decisions at times where, you know, there's movements in, in like, for example, if I take defensive organization as, a, as one, there's there's certain pressing movements that they have which you know that's something that he's imposed and he sees the game in that light and it's given him that success I think in essence what I think what Marcelo does and 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 I would say Pep Guardiola does as well is that you know they've just got so much varied experience with working with such top level people as players and as as coaches that you know, they've seen the game in its finite way. They've seen it as this being a potential answer to a problem. Uh, and, and that's, that's sort of the, the derivative of their, of, their, of their coaching philosophy is that this is how it is for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I don't know those, what those answers are, so to say, but I think when you listen to like players, you, you, like I think it was Andrew Herrera saying like he was probably one of the best coaches that he ever had was Marcel Bielsa when he was at Bilbao and, you know, he talked a lot about just how much he taught in the game based on certain things. And what I think, what I think Marcelo did was just really individually give every player something that they needed. And I think you see the likes of like Calvin Phillips, like you wouldn't, I don't, I, I can't say for certain that elite at a championship player two years ago would now be in an England squad. It's, 
hard to predict that. But, you know, you watch Calvin Phillips and he arguably he's been one of England's best players in the midfield. Like he's been a tremendous asset to the team. And it's I think Bielsa's got a way of individualizing player development. But collectively, it might appear a bit old school. But in that sense, old school is not wrong. It's just sometimes what not every player likes. And I think, I think that's where sometimes people get lost in it. And I think Bielsa is a, is a master of individualizing things See, tactically. Sorry for the interruption, Dalibor, but I think, you know, people don't talk about the learning or they don't speak about the learning enough as yeah. they should. I mean, yeah. a huge role of your role, a huge part of your role as an analyst is the learning. And of course, a lot of that can take place off the pitch. You know, yeah. peer learning, video analysis. I mean, yeah. what types of communication do you guys use within men's national team to cater for all these different learning styles? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to spill the beans on too much, but I'll, I can, I can give you like a, like an, uh, like an overview. But essentially, it's important that you that you work, uh, you work in units, and so you're you're really developing that 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 shared tactical model and that blueprint. But you're also sh- you're also sharing a mental model as well of how we behave um, in the in the chaoticness of football, and I think that's been really important for the success. Um, and I think that's something that you know the likes of, of John and and people like them. It's just you know they've really excelled in in demonstrating that and in, in just the collective and individual understanding of roles and responsibilities, whether that's through team meetings as a whole, whether that's broken up into t- and uh, into units, maybe individually. Um, but I think it's also important that the player takes time on their own to to review things and. You know, you see that even in the NFL, just like how much investment there is in individual uh, analysis for players. And, and they're getting like a room full of laptops and iPads where they're getting to study it for themselves and learn um, as well. And I know that some of the Premier League academies have got that as well. So I think it's really just about collectively providing clear clear understandings but i think individually it's also providing roles and responsibilities and really just showing what if scenarios um and not just one what if but multiple because the game's not always going to feel and look that way uh so you've got to cater that to every individual and just really strike that piece because that's that's so important like you have to individualize it to the, to the point where your team talks almost have to be directed to certain behaviors and certain elements and certain people, not calling them out, but really just bringing in the importance of what individual behavior looks like and is to a team. Um, so, yeah, that would be my answer to that. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Terrific insight. And I know we spoke off camera, Delaware, as to what it's really like to work within the Canadian men's national team, only good things, of course. But how drastically different is it working within an international setup to the club scene? Before I know you were at the Whitecaps, in terms of, I mean, you guys only meet up for camp at best seven, eight times a year. I mean, when you players for seven to 10 days in those, you know, short, confined time ranges and date ranges, how on your game do you need to be? I'd imagine every hour is accounted for. Yeah, it's, um, I guess the best way you can put it is it's like Formula One. 
it's like when you're changing the tires every time the car stops like you need to be ready to adapt and that's sort of the the piece that we've always had is like you've just got to be ready for anything uh in international football and and the one thing about international football that's a lot different is you have a lot of time to prepare but you don't have that in camp right and I guess the difference is that you've, you've got so many individuals coming from all over the world to, to take in the camp, right? So you've really got to individualize their physical aspect and then the tactical aspect. Like, yeah, really the essence of the hard work is done before camp. Like, like players have to know what their roles and objectives and responsibilities are before coming in. Like you can't, you, you can't come into camp and then start to talk, talk off about what, what the importance of this camp is and what we're trying to do. Like that work has to happen before it's, you know, it's, it's the essence of, of international football. Like you, if you look at the likes of like Italy and in England and England, like that preparation was months ago. Like they knew as soon as that draw happened, what they were going to, that what they were going to play for and who they were going to play. And, and that's where the studying now takes place. And, you know, you even see that with, I think it was a Roberto Martinez. Um, whistle to episode. Whistle. It's a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I watched, it's great. And, but that's the, that's like the piece, like, like you've literally got to be so involved in every player and every club. And you, you're wearing like 20 hats because you've got to go talk to this club and that club. And you've really got to individualize what each player needs. And like I said earlier, the work is done before not during during is the is the touch-ups <laughs> and then really. when you guys meet for camp of course i mean you've a terrific cultural architect there and john herdman who's overseen great success within both the women's and the men's national team i mean when we speak about the human side it would be remiss of me not to bring this up but what is so special about the environment and the culture he's created there uh yeah it's a good question um you know i was just uh and I was just reminiscing actually the other week of just some of the, some of the moments that we've lived together, like John and I, and, and, and the likes of Mauro Biello and all the coaching staff there and the, and the people in the physical, um, physical space and the sports science, but really what it comes down to is just good people. At the end of the day, it's just good people. Like people who just love what they do, love helping others and love just supporting our country. And, in essence, that's what's brought a lot of our success is just how committed the technical staff are, the, the sports science staff and the behind the scenes staff. So, you know, they all they all know their responsibilities pre, during and post camp. But yeah, like it's such a welcoming place. Like it's you, you've not got like a, a bad bone in the camp. Like everyone is just so committed to to the goals and objectives of the camp and that's really been key uh but again it's just good people and i think that's what's really lived up to the success of, of the national team i have a phrase here within the academy and it's they say you know football is a game of interactions not actions you know nothing is taken in isolation and i suppose yeah. the more you live that every day the more it becomes apparently true to yourself I mean, yeah. we've seen how the game of football has changed dramatically over the past 10 years in terms of space, in terms of the physique, the players in terms of technical capabilities. I mean, yeah. you, Delabor, a guy who studied the game extensively since your youth, where do you see the future of football headed? 
Uh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I've got my own ideas and there's things that I would love to pilot forward with, uh, with some, with some people, but from an analyst perspective, I think what, uh, what I would love to see in the game of football, not what maybe what the game needs, but um, I think there's something to be said about the physical data aligning up with spatial data. That is where I see the future of football. Like, I'll give you an example. From the first minute to the 90th minute, the player's not going to execute that same action at the same speed. So why train it the same way? Like, why train a high press from the first minute to the 90th minute at the same rhythm, at the same tempo, when we know physically that a player might not be able to do that at the same time? So I think there's something to be said about the future of football involving how much ground and space a player can cover from the first minute to the 90th minute. And based on those metrics, you can actually start to involve tactical adjustments. Because what some happens? player might – what's that? What happens if you're able to make 12 subs, though, like Croatia, Spain? <laughs> yeah, so that's the that, that's just it. Like, you almost have to – you almost have to – you have to take into consideration like like the the players that you have available as well to 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 be a game changer for you when they go on the field as well <laughs> like i think now you've got multiple subs i think that piece could even be more amplified of how important it is and i think if you align physical data and and spatial data and or whatever we want to call it i think that's the that's what i would love to see football become is taking those two elements together. And based on those, you might actually be able to make uh, tactical adjustments. Um, and I think, I think that would be cool. And I think the future of coaching might be that coaches actually, you hire coaches to to work in each phase. Like you've got. That, that's it though. We're always trying to move the ball forward. You're never, ever going to reach, you know, that point of elixir within yeah. football. I mean, no. there's very few predictive stats out there. I mean, we do have packing, field tilts, but even when you look at XG and then you look at games within the European Championships, I mean, how much of a significant proportion of that XG is down to game state at the time? And as you said, aligning data, the weariness of the players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think when you're using like physical data, you, you might be... I mean, there, there could be a correlation. I don't know enough about that sports science piece, but, you know, the more that a player runs based on their, their physical capacity, if they're running way above that threshold, there's probably something to be said about decision-making and, and how much, how much is, is brought down. So if a player can only run 10 kilometers a game and you're seeing them clock in at 13 and it's extra time and you're starting to say that's a wary body, like, what are we what are we doing to understand how much of that data is actually related to decision making as well when players are players are doing something above threshold i think that's where that's where the essence of football goes um and i think that's that's the important piece um but i think that in the evolution of football i think we also have to remember that psychology is extremely important um and i think the science of sleep uh, the science of flow state, like those things will all, I think, take more precedence now, I think, than anything to do with technology, I feel, um, because I think the human element has really started to become more evolved 
in our game for sure. And I mean, within all this, what does the future hold for Dalibor Plavsic and the Canadian men's national team? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, the future is hopefully a, a qualification for for the Qatar World Cup. Uh, obviously, we're ho- we, we're one of three countries that are hosting the 2026. But I think that, that the importance for me is as a, as an analyst and it's just growing the game up until that point, because we have a role to play as coaches in our communities and as analysts at the national level is how are we, how are we providing environments where kids have the chance to succeed at that level or, or chase and get to that level. And also what are we doing at the national program to embody that and also uh, get ourselves to, to that elite level. And the, the mission is, Obviously, the Gold Cup's coming up, so the goal, I'm sure, will be to to win that event, but also is really just strive towards qualifying for Qatar. I think that's the mission now, uh, and I'm yeah, I'm excited to be to be to be a fan and an analyst in every capacity of that. So, yeah. Aspiring coaches, analysts, or whatever, wishing to adopt a similar path, embark on a similar journey to yourself, Dalibor. What advice would you have for them? I think uh, an advice for any analyst or, or any coach is I think you have to be authentic. Uh, and I think, and I say that, and I say that very bluntly because, you know, you have to, you have to come in with your own method of doing something and you, and you have to almost, you have to, you have to show your uniqueness to someone is you can't, you can't talk about all the things that you know, because object, those are all objectively what you've researched to help you guide guide your understanding of what you feel football is. I think you have to be curious and authentic. Like you have to be, you have to be open to, to being vulnerable about what you feel is the best or potentially the best way. Uh, and for me, I think that's what's helped me is just being very curious and authentic. And, and to any analyst, I would say, don't be a, a, a blueprint of someone else, like be your own. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what makes every coach unique. Um, you look at Tuchel, Bielsa, Klopp, Guardiola, Hansi Flick, like all these top coaches, they all are so unique from each other. And that's what's made them successful. You know, when you study football coaching in that element, you see that it's all about just being a little bit different than someone else. So I would say that for sure. The authenticity is the key. Alibur, it's conversations like this that make me thankful. You know, it's the reason why I began the podcast in the first place. It's been terrific to have you on and get a deep dive insight into what is actually going on in Canada at the moment, which seems to be something special. And it seems to have a few more years left in it with 2026 yeah. on the horizon, amongst many other yeah. things in between. But Dalibur, for anyone who's enjoyed this conversation that wishes to keep up to date with yourself, where's best to catch you online? Um, so for anybody who's interested, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, you'll see it's Dalibor Plavzik underscore. Uh, you can follow me there. Uh, that's, that's the best way to, to sort of see some of the things that, that I'm doing, some things that I post, um, and on LinkedIn, uh, you can just put in Dalibor Plavzik and you can, you can send me an invitation. I'm, I'm, I'm open ears to conversations all the time. And I want to say thank you for having me on. And it's been a real pleasure and, uh, and it's been a real joy just to, to hear and listen to your thoughts and obviously hear from mine. And so I, I want to just say thank you for having me here as well.
No, the pleasure's all mine. Um, we must get a second episode <laughs> chalked in for when you guys yeah, are the there. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it'll be great. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, come back with uh, with another one for sure with some good news for you. Valibur, pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much.